Welcome back to the program. Mom Zev Brenner. Good Yantav. Chag Sameach. It's Israel Independence Day. And with us right now is Eli Weber. He's Director of Overseas Operations for Yeshiva Gush Etzion, both the Boys and Girls Division and certain close to Rav Aaron Lichtenstein of Blessed Memory just passed away. And we figure what better way to look at Israeli Independence Day and also do a tribute to Rav Aaron Lichtenstein. So, Eli, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. You know, it's really Independence Day uh, today, and it's being commemorated worldwide. Rev. Lichtenstein was a big Zionist, right? I know that he gave up being a Rosh Hashiva at YU. He could have been the next Rosh Hashiva there after Soloveitchik, his father-in-law, but yet he gave it up to move to almost a land that was barely inhabited when he first came to Gush what, about 1967, 68? 69, but it's absolutely true. He was the Rosh Kolo in YU. Presumably, his path in life was set. He was well-known. It was likely that he would have continued there and been the ideological leader of modern orthodoxy in America after his father-in-law. And he came to, to Alon Shvud, a place that probably had a population of 50 at the time. People think of Yeshivat Haratziono as now as you know, the leading Hezde Yeshiva. But when he came, it was in a hut, and it had 30 guys. But he had a dream to live and learn Torah in the state of Israel, and he followed his dream. And he also was the father, the ideological father, right, of the Hezi Yeshiva movement in Israel. Yes, when he came, when he published his seminal piece called Hezder Lechatchila, arguing that combining army service and Torah study was not sort of a, some kind of compromise but was actually what he thought God wanted of us, Lechatzila, as a first and foremost and primary option. It changed the conversation. I, I think our community went from being slightly defensive to feeling that, hey, we're doing it exactly, exactly the way it should be done. And it's the people who aren't serving and who aren't learning who need to try to apologize and defend their positions, but that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Did he view the creation of the State of Israel in messianic terms, like it being a schalta de gula, beginning of the redemptive process? I never heard him use those terms, but I knew that he thought, that, I think he thought that those terms didn't really matter. What he thought was, the State of Israel is a gift from God, and it's a gift from God that we need to be thankful for, and that we need to praise God for, and we need to celebrate. Whether it was the first step, the last step, an in-between step towards a schalta de gula, I think that's the kind of conversation that he, that he thought was unnecessary to have. It was enough to recognize the value of the state of Israel, to love the state of Israel, and to thank God for it. The reason why I mention that on this broadcast just the other night, Rabbi Mordechai Penner, the head of the dean of Reed, said that Rabbi Lichten's position was similar to the Rav, where he didn't view it as being a schal to the Google, being a beginning of the redemptive process. He viewed it more let's wait and see attitude. Sometimes, and that I don't mean to insult anybody, I, I think that the terms that are used and discussed in American life are, are less important in Israel. Meaning, when I lived in America, there was always a conversation Hallel, no Hallel, with a bracha, without a bracha. In the state of Israel, that conversation doesn't exist. And it's not because everybody says Hallel with a bracha, it's because to not celebrate, to celebrate the day means so much more and whether you say halal or not, or whether you use this religious term to describe it or not. It's a day of celebration because people here realize that we received a gift from God, and that gift from God needs to be acknowledged and praised and celebrated, whether you call it ashal to the Google or not. Or whether you say halal or not? I, I think so. I really do. Again, Rav Lechonsin said halal, 
Letty Yeshiva that said Hallel. But I, I don't think he would have looked down on a person who didn't say Hallel. And I think if you asked him, should I say Hallel with Racha or not, I don't think he would have answered you yes or no. I think he would have said, you know, look in your heart and see how you feel. And if it's an expression of how you feel, then you should. But I don't think that he would have, and I think in his memory, I don't think we should judge people's Zionism by the narrow question of whether they say hala with or without a bracha or at all on Yom mode. Well, I would say if you're living in Israel, whether you say it or not, you're a Zionist. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I, I, think, I think that that's right. Right, so uh, for those that argue, is now certainly the, the state of Israel has theological issues now, you mentioned he could have been possibly the head of YU had he stayed. Was there ever any consideration for him to become or run or be part of the chief rabbinate process? I don't think so. I think he separated himself much like, you know, early, early on, I think in the 50s, the position was offered to Rav Salvechik or he was offered to run for it. And at some point he backed out of it and he said, you know, what I am is I'm a, I'm a malamed, I'm a teacher. I don't want to be involved in that. Rav Lipsing was not a politician. To be involved in politics, and I loved Rav Lichtenstein. I don't think he would have, you know, he would have made for a great Rav Arashi because he was too—he was too much a man of principle. So I, I don't think, you know, he was seen as, you know, in many ways you could say he was more powerful than a Rav Arashi. When you produce thousands of Talmidim who want to get your views on everything and who, you know, who respect you that deeply. That's a much more powerful, you know, that's a position that's earned by force of reputation. That's not gained by vote or by some edict of the government. And I, I think it may have been bizarrely almost a step down for him to become a Rav Arashi. Tell us about your relationship with Rav Lichtenstein, and maybe have, you can share with us an interesting story. I met Rav Lichtenstein when I was 16 years old, and I had an entrance exam to become a Talmud in Yeshivat Haratzion. And from that moment on, I'd never met a person like him. I'd never been as overwhelmed by a person like him. And he became, you know, a significant figure. And he, you know, he changed my life. And just very quickly, I walked into a room as a kid. He asked me, I was with other boys. Four of us took a test together. He asked us what Gemara we were learning. We told him we were learning Gidden. He didn't open anything up. We told him what Sugya, and he, he, he basically started discussing it. He asked us to compare it to another Sugya in Shas to see our thought process. I'd never seen anybody do anything like this before. I'd never seen a person talk in conceptual terms about Gemara before, compare Sugyus before, not test you on your knowledge, but test you on how you thought and how you could compare and how you could reason. And it changed my perspective on learning, and then I became a Talmud of his, and he changed what I thought a human being was capable of. I thought human beings were capable of you know, 60 or 70, and I met a person who was capable of 100. And I think I and others, which were so overwhelmed by his greatness, that we thought perhaps maybe we could do more. You know, I mentioned the other night, too, that I went through my father's yearbook after he passed away from Chaim Berlin, and I noticed that Ravar Lichtenstein's photo was in the same graduating class as my father. So he went from Chaim Berlin to YU to being one of the leaders of modern orthodoxy and Zionism. Um, I'm curious to know about, did he ever speak about his transition? Unique because in the old days, my father in law, Alava Shalom, learned in Chaim Berlin as well. 
if you left Chaim Berlin to go to YU, you know, it was seen as as a, as a disrespectful act of Huttner, and usually you lost your relationship. But to the end of his life, Rav Lichtenstein thought of Rav Huttner, Rav Aaron Salvechik, and the Rav as being the three primary teachers in his life, and he kept relationships with all of them. And he's one of the few people who bridged that, that gap between Chaim Berlin and YU. And I, I think he thought of Rav Huttner as being a significant influence on his life. Interesting, because he was able to bridge, did he try bridging the gap in more ways? Because for a long time in Chaim Blin Yeshiva circles, YU was looked down upon and they made fun of the Rav. I don't, I don't think it's fair to say that they made fun of the Rav, but yes. Well, I went to, well, I went to Yeshiva, they used to, call, they, used to call him, they, used to, they used to call him JB. That's how they referred to him. And one of the sad things, just historically, is he may be the last of his type, born in France, a Holocaust survivor, a Talmud of great European rabbeim. We just we're running out of people like that who simply have that biography and that background, and it it's something that we'll miss in our community. Who who is who do you consider best as carrying on the legacy of Aaron Lichtenstein? You know, that is a really really hard question. In terms of the yeshiva, Rav Aaron's greatness is he has a rosh yeshiva already. Rav Moshe Lichtenstein, Rav Gigi, and Rav Maidan are the Rashi Yeshiva who will take the Yeshiva into the future. Which of them, if any, becomes the leader of our community? You know, I, I couldn't guess. They're all qualified, but, you know, history will tell, and the next 10 years or so will tell who steps up. You know, one thing you know is that no one knows what tomorrow is going to bring in Israel, religiously, politically, you know, in any way. We'll just have to see how it plays out. I don't know. You know, again, as you know, we're not like the Haredi community where when the Gadol Hador passes away, there need, you know, when Rav Stein, there needs to be the next person. Who's the next person? We'll live organically. We'll, we'll see what happens. There could be, you know, more than one person who leads us in different areas. It's just too soon to say. Before I let you go, Ellie Weber is our guest, Director of Overseas Operations for the Yeshiva's Gush. Um, tell us about your institutions growing. Are you getting, I know you're getting American students that come to you as well. So tell us about the both facilities, both for the girls and for the boys. Okay, you know, the, the, well, we'll do the boys first. I, I think, broadly speaking, Yeshiva Haratzion is seen as the or one of the leading has their yeshivot in Israel in terms of the seriousness of its learning, and that's what it's known for, the seriousness of its learning, the depth of the learning. And I think it attracts those kinds of guys. But recently, you know, one of the most interesting that's happened recently is that Hezder has always been 18 months in the Army, well, that's what it is now, you know, and three and a half years in Yeshiva. And what's happening in the State of Israel now is there are people who really want to serve three full years in Yeshiva, and they're serious about their Talmud Torah. And so Gush recently revamped or opened a new track in its Hezder program in which boys can come and learn in Yeshiva for two years, then go do the army for three years, and come back after that. That's, that's a step forward in Hezder. It hasn't happened before. Other Yeshivot haven't done it. We'll have to see how, you know, whether how successful that is. I think people look to Gush as a thought leader and this step in terms of opening a new track in Hezder, because the Army, if you want to do anything special in the Army, you have to sign on for three years. If you want to be in an elite unit, if 
you want to be an intelligence, you have to start on for three years. So the yeshiva is now making that an option or providing that as an option for its Talmudim. And then, you know, the yeshiva is growing because of that. We'll just have to see how it plays out. In terms of the women's program, you know, Migdalos was the trailblazing Torah institution for women in Israel. It was the first that opened a real base medrash, and the greatness of Migdalos and the greatness of Rolinchin was it wasn't done in a political way. It wasn't done to make a statement. I was blessed to have a daughter who learned there for two years. I used to go late at night to sit with her in the base medrash. My daughter never thought of herself as a trailblazer and never thought she was doing something unique. The greatness of Migdalos, the women's branch of Yeshiva Haratzion, is that it does what it thinks is right. It doesn't try to make a statement about it. It doesn't try to make an example. It simply teaches Torah because it believes that girls need to learn Torah and as, uh, on the highest level possible, and it's wildly successful. I was very impressed. In my full confession, my daughter is going there, God willing, next year. So I went to visit the campus a couple months ago. Very, very impressive. <laughs> no, thank God. I mean, my daughter chose this, and she's, I think she's very happy with her choice. And I guess as, as the year progresses next year, I have a lot more to say about that. Then we hope you will join us more for our broadcast. I'd be happy to. Thanks so much. Thank you. Ellie Weber, Director of Overseas Operations for the Yeshivas in Gush Etzion. We're commenting on the passing of Aaron Lichtenstein, a blessed memory of Rosh Yeshiva of Gush. We're going to be right back. Don't go away. Stay tuned.